Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this series, we have been working our way through the book of Judges, which bridges the narrative gap between Israel's conquest of Canaan and the establishment of the monarchy. Throughout the book, the people repeatedly fall into infidelity, forsaking the law of the Lord, which allows mimetic rivalry and violence to flourish throughout the community. As a result, Israel grows weak, which allows their enemies to oppress them. In their suffering, the people cry out to the Lord, who raises up various judges to deliver them. Some of these fit the anticipated mould of the conquering Davidic king who rescues Israel from their enemies and ushers in a prolonged period of peace and prosperity. Others, however, are not exactly what we might expect. For example, in chapters 4 and 5, we met Jael, a foreign woman who saved Israel by smashing a tent peg through the skull of Sisera, the commander of their enemy's armies, while he sleeps. Although the judges' stories are not always pretty, the Lord repeatedly empowers these imperfect vessels to unite the people and vent the community's collective rivalries upon their enemies. In the last episode, we met Gideon, who is commissioned to deliver the Israelite people from their Midianite enemies. And today, as we continue reading from chapter 7, verse 1, we continue his story. Then Jerobal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouths was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his own home. So the people took provision in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it to your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore for abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, 
Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent, and struck it so that it fell, and turned it upside down, so the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian, and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. The Lord of Mimetic Violence declares that Gideon's army is too large and decides to whittle down his militia, lest the people of Israel claim the glory of victory for themselves. In other words, desire for military glory now consumes Gideon, who decides that a smaller army will only boast the glory and honour attained through his victory over the Midianites. For this reading, Gideon calls everyone who is afraid of the battle to return home. We saw this custom first expressed in the book of Deuteronomy, and it makes total sense from a mimetic perspective. Any soldiers who are consumed by fear have set their desire upon preserving their own lives rather than the glory of victory, and therefore will be ineffective in battle. Moreover, their fear may be imitated by other soldiers distracting them from their main desired object of victory. To avoid this scenario, 22,000 people consumed by fear were sent home, leaving a smaller yet stronger militia comprised solely of 10,000 soldiers who are committed to achieving military success at all costs. However, the army is still too large to inspire the types of tales and legends of Gideon's fantasies. Consumed by mimetic desire, Gideon sends another 9,700 of his soldiers home based on the arbitrary distinction of how they drink water from a nearby well. Now left with 300 soldiers, Gideon prepares to make a name for himself. You see, Gideon's reluctance to accept his calling in the previous chapter does not betray a lack of mimetic impulse, but rather an excess of it as he remained firmly attached to his mimetic idols. Only when the Lord kindles his desire for victory over the Midianites is Gideon able to refocus his desire upon military glory. Seeing himself as the least honourable among his poor family, Gideon sets his desire upon becoming a mighty man of valour and attaining riches and honour by delivering his people from their Midianite oppressors. Even though Gideon has set his desire upon military glory and honour, the desire for self-preservation still niggles him. To remedy this niggle, the Lord of Mimetic Desire inspires Gideon to spy out the Midianite camp with his servant, Pura. He soon discovers that the Midianite army are consumed by fear when someone interprets a random dream about a loaf of bread crashing into their camp as an omen for telling their inevitable destruction at the hand of Gideon and his army. And notice how Gideon's ambition and desire for glory and honour even inserts itself into this person's dream. As the Midianite mentions Gideon the son of Joash, a man of Israel, who will ultimately destroy them. Hearing these things, Gideon becomes emboldened as he inhales his enemy's fear and rushes back up to prepare his army for battle. Reading on now from verse 16. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. 
When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon! So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew their trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke their jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittar, towards Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel, Meholah, and Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Empowered by the lord of mimetic rivalry and violence, Gideon leverages his enemy's fear to destroy them from within. Note that again, Gideon's ambition is inserted into the soldiers' mouths as they cry out, a sword for the lord and a sword for Gideon. He makes his army of 300 look and sound much bigger by spreading them out and placing trumpets and torches in the hands of every single soldier rather than just the commanders. In addition, the smashing of empty pots imitated the commotion of a large army rushing into battle. This illusion amplifies fear and panic amongst the Midianites, precipitating a mimetic crisis. In their blindness, the Midianites begin to fight against one another, while Gideon and his army pursue them. Having put his enemies to flight, Gideon then calls the Ephraimites to join him in battle. Inspired by Gideon's success, the Ephraimites capture and kill the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and present their heads to Gideon as trophies. Through this tribute, Gideon is honoured and glorified as a valiant warlord, suggesting he has indeed apprehended his desired object without even picking up a sword. Gideon's story illustrates how the power of mimetic rivalry and violence may be harnessed by manipulating fear to induce a mimetic crisis. Reading on now from chapter 8, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Azazah? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the three hundred men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, 
Please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zebra and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zebra and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give you any bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zebra and Zamula into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penwal and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penwal answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penwal, When I come to gain in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zebra and Zalmona were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah in Jogbadar and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zebra and Zalmona fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian. Zeba and Zalmona, and he threw all their army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, seventy-seven men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmona, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmona already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and the briars with them, and taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel, and he killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmona, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zebra and Zamullah said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his valour. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zamunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Gideon, the master of mimetic rivalry, manages to defuse Ephraim's challenge with flattery when they accuse him fiercely. The word translated as accuse in this passage is again the Hebrew word to quarrel or complain, from which the first part of Gideon's nickname, Jerubal, is derived. As we have seen throughout the Pentateuch, this term describes a community's attempt to scapegoat someone. Again, the same verb is used to describe the Israelites' attempt to scapegoat Moses in the wilderness. Now in Joshua 8, the people of Ephraim observe Gideon's military success and desire to become like him. This desire brings Ephraim into conflict with Gideon, who view him as an obstacle to their desired object. When the people of Ephraim band together to scapegoat Gideon, he manages to pacify their wrath with flattering words, thereby surviving the attack. By praising and magnifying the tribe's military exploits and Ephraim's amazing farming, Gideon gives Ephraim the glory and honour that they desire. 
Also desiring to be honoured, Gideon asked the men of Succoth and Penuel to feed his family. However, the people of both towns refuse to support Gideon's war effort, feeling he will ultimately fail and Zeba and Zamona will take revenge upon them. Through this refusal, the men of Succoth and Penuel not only dishonour Gideon, but also raise doubts concerning his military competence. Viewing these two towns as obstacles to his desired objects of honour and glory, Gideon directs his anger towards them and fulfils his promise to return in victory and punish them. Once captured, Zeba and Zamuna also threaten Gideon's desired object of military honour and glory by stating that they killed his brothers. In the ancient world, masculine honour was associated with protecting one's family. The death of Gideon's brothers required a revenge killing to restore his honour. And so, Gideon's remark, If you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. In an interesting twist, Gideon commands his firstborn son, Jether, to arise and kill Zeba and Zalmona. Yet we are told that the boy refused because, still being a young man, he was riddled with fear. The young, fearful Jether reminds us of a young Gideon before he became possessed by mimetic desire and violence. The juxtaposition of these two men emphasise how mimetic desire has shaped Gideon. Although his son refuses to kill Zeba and Zalmunna, Gideon wastes no time. He slays the two kings in response to their taunt. Zeba and Zalmunna repeat Gideon's command to his son, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his valour. In other words, the two kings taunt him, suggesting that Gideon's actions prove he himself is not a man of valour because he is fearful of executing Zeba and Zalmunna. Anxious to prove them wrong, Gideon slays Zeba and Zalmunna and takes the royal crescent ornaments from the necks of their camels as trophies for himself to garnish his personal glory. Let's continue reading from verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings from his spoil. The weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Orphah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerobal the son of Joash went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. 
As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baalberet their god. And the people of Israel did not remember that the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerobal, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Gideon finally receives his desired object of glory and honor as the people acknowledge that he has saved them from the Midianites and desire to make him king. From a mimetic perspective, the king is always a scapegoat in waiting, who has managed to prolong their execution long enough to transform the people's veneration into real honor and power. Having survived through his mastery of mimetic rivalry and violence, Gideon begins to play the role of a king. He even names one of his sons Abimelech, which means, my father is king. Yet Gideon refuses to take the official role of king, claiming that the lord of mimetic rivalry will rule over Israel. Through these words, Gideon acknowledges that the people still ultimately are ruled by the very mimetic rivalry and desire which consumes him. Still chasing glory, honor, and now riches, Gideon acquires 1,700 shekels of gold from the people of Israel. The people spread a cloak on the ground and cast their gold items into the top of it. Gideon then takes the people's wealth for himself and uses it to transform this everyday garment into a priestly garment which symbolizes his transformation from fear to valiant warlord. The ephod is housed at Gideon's ancestral home at Ophrah, the same location of Gideon's transformation through his commission and repentance from mimetic idolatry. We are told that all Israel hoard after the ephod. In other words, Israel blindly followed and submitted themselves to Gideon's insatiable desire for glory and honor. When Gideon takes the people's wealth, their gold earrings, they don't argue they're all too happy to give them away to Gideon their scapegoat king who becomes their new object of veneration. The people's devotion ultimately becomes a snare to Gideon and his family who continue to chase greater heights of honor, riches and glory while bankrupting the people of Israel. Gideon uses the people's wealth to build his own palace, amass his own harem and support his 70 sons. Although Gideon refused to receive the epithet of king, his blind desire for riches, honor, and glory has seen him become and live like one. During his rule, the people enjoy 40 years of peace from their enemies until Gideon finally dies. The chapter then ends on an ominous note as we are told that the people did not remember the Lord suggesting a new era of apostasy which will again lead to Israel's oppression by their enemies. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.